This podcast takes you into the rarely discussed realm of the personal decisions leaders have taken that have influenced their business decisions and developed them into the leaders they are today. The refreshingly honest experiences of those who have been very successful provide an insight into the challenges they faced, the successes they achieved, and the people who influenced them along their journey. Here's our host, Mark Silvera. Hey, welcome to Business Made Personal. So glad that you've decided to dial into our podcast. I think you're going to enjoy this one as you probably have some of our others. Today, I've got Richard Crawford with me. Just to give you a little bit of background on Richard, Richard spent equal parts of his career in operational business management and also in consulting. Richard commenced his career with the Shell Company and subsequently with Elders, where he led the insurance and marketing teams. After 10 years as principal in his own consulting practice, Richard joined Insurance Australia Group, where his focus was on talent development and cultural change. And we'll speak a little bit about that with him a bit later. Richard joined NAS as the General Manager of Distribution for the Community Broker Network, or CBN as we know it these days, with responsibility for bringing together three quite different communities of professionals into one of Australia's largest AR networks. With the advent of the sale of the business by IAG to Steadfast in October 2018, Richard assumed the role of CEO where he is today. He's a Queenslander by birth, and Richard and his wife Sue have recently returned to Adelaide where they have spent the last 26 years raising their family. He says that his success on the golf course has risen to the same dizzy heights as the success of his football team, the Adelaide Crows. Richard Crawford is a business leader and coach whose career purpose is to develop and grow leadership talent. So pleased to have you with us today, Richard. Thank you very much, Mark, and hello. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity to have a conversation. Fantastic. Hey, uh, you completed an environmental science degree and then had as you've put it, a shortage of a career plan. What changed for you? Well, I think um, selecting a university course was all about finding stuff that seemed amusing and interesting, and uh, environmental science was a pretty hot-off-the-press qualification in those days. In fact, I think I was the second intake to Griffith University. And so looking forward as a school student, it looked like a fantastic thing to do outside uh, in the, the great outdoors, doing lab work and sciences, which I loved. But the reality of the kind of work you could secure in that space and the opportunities that presented you sort of hit once I got my first job, I suppose. Yeah. So your first job was, was with Shell Oil Company, as, as I have read. The Shell Company was kind of my second landing point because my first job was a, as a lab technician working uh, as an environmental scientist at Range Uranium in the Northern Territory. So I suddenly realised that, I'd, you know, I was a bit of a flawed uh, environmental scientist at that point. So I decided, or in fact, my family helped me decide I needed a career with uh, meaning and future focus. So they got me a graduate job with Shell. I tell you what, they'd be eating their words today. I think uh, our good friend Scott Morrison should probably do with some help at the minute. Just a touchy topic right now, very topical. 100%. So, as an environmental scientist, you joined Shell, almost mutually exclusive, one would say, because they're not renowned for their environmental friendly nature, would be the normal person's view. Uh, they certainly, I mean, it's hard to reconcile the oil industry and hydrocarbons with being an environmental scientist. But I think at the time, I had done a lot of my study in terrestrial, what they call terrestrial ecosystems, which is 
largely about farm production or national parks and things like that. The Shell Company offered me a graduate career essentially in sales, but I was able to focus on rural Australia and it sort of became the beginning of a, a lifelong love with the country. I think the um, the thing about having a graduate career then was you either joined an oil company, a bank, an insurance company, or uh, perhaps you had a profession. And so my family were all doctors and medicos and uh, but I chose not to go down that route. So the next best thing was to get a career-type job. And in those days, you didn't have to think too hard. As long as you got in with a good company, then they managed your career for you. It was a bit of a crossover, I think. But ultimately, the thing about university was it um, taught me how to think and how to learn, but it really doesn't prepare you for what your career and your longer-term focus in life should be. That really happened to me once I left university and started working. I mean, that's fascinating. So you came from a family of medicos. Was there pressure on you to toe the line and join that community? Well, it's interesting because I uh, was a bit of the black sheep, I guess. I, we were about the, I was the third generation, potentially, of Australian doctors. But no, and in fact, my father was a a suburban GP, you know, he had the light out the front of the house and the surgery in the house. And we had patients there, could be 24 hours a day, depending on who was sick or why. And he really encouraged me to go and do something else. Uh, I mean, he was, GPs were the ultimate small business people in those days, I guess, and like their customers or their patients were. And uh, he said to me, uh, no, don't do this. There are easier things in life to do. So uh, yeah, funny. So how did you then get into the insurance space? Well, it was, well, like everybody. So the cliche survives another query. I fell into it. Uh, interestingly, I when I left the Shell Company, I secured a job with elders and they had a bit of a management restructure happening and I was approached to lead the insurance division, which I took on very gratefully. Uh, I knew nothing about insurance, knew a lot about selling and I was, because Elders was essentially uh, an insurance agent of commercial union, I think Mercantile Mutual, and we had a life business with National Mutual. It was relatively uncomplicated from an insurance vice perspective. And they gave me a great mentor in, uh, because we were then commercial union's largest agency in Australia. I got the benefit of a mentor by the name of Ernest Bennett, who had just retired as Deputy Managing Director of CU and was busy starting up uh, Harlan Premium Funding and a few other business ventures. So he really helped me understand a bit more about insurance on the way through. Very much a case of falling into it though, Mark. I hear you loud and clear, Richard, as, as many of us have. I did know Ernest Bennett and I do know the sort of character of the man. He was He was a sort of larger than life figure, but a really pleasant man to be around. What do you think he gave you that you found so compelling? The best thing he gave me was the bigger picture of insurance, mostly how the system worked, you know, where the money came from, where it went, and all the things that impacted it on the way through, and how you could make a difference to the fortunes of everybody. So he enabled me to understand the big picture of insurance. And I think you've got to sort of understand the system or the the uh, process if you want to play a part in it. Uh, the second thing he did was connected me with great people. You know, insurance, particularly in those days, was about the people you met and you knew 
because it was a game of experience and judgment and you really had to get a lot of advice all the time from people whose uh, special experience you needed to understand. So uh, occasionally once a month I'd have a major problem that I'd have to try and solve and it would only be was major because it made my desk, I guess. Everything else got solved on the way through. And usually they involved complex discussions with stakeholders and Ernest was able to help me develop my thinking on how to attack a problem, how to solve it and get the best outcome. Just a typical sort of mentor stuff, which was invaluable for me. And as you said, he did it in such a pleasant and calm way that he really you know, made me a lot more confident about the opportunity. So there's a criticism being levelled against the industry these days that says that goes something along the lines of you really don't have to know too much about underwriting or you don't need to know too much about claims. We tend to tick the boxes. You know, there's a process and there's a procedure for absolutely everything. If we assume that that is the truth, which between you and me, I don't, but where do you see the role of a mentor these days? Is it still as important today as it was back, you know, when you and I started? Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I think, you know, as our quality of our data improves, then the need for judgment calls gets less and less. And therefore, the value of experience sometimes seems to be less. But in fact, our data is nowhere near good enough yet. And the industry, you know, if there are 100 participants in the industry, there are 100 different approaches to considering the same set of circumstances. So, you know, I think that for a long time to come, you know, there will be a need for mentors to help you, if not argue the facts or consider the facts, even just consider the approach and uh, help navigate the complexities of the people-to-people relationships. Because, you know, and I know that, you know, more often than not, it comes down to communication, negotiation, discussion, and trying to build a shared understanding. Because often we could be looking at the same risk or the same geography or the same circumstances, and there could be four people with four different points of view. And until you understand where people are coming from, you can't actually resolve the problem, you know, be it a client risk or be it a major business issue. And thinking about your time in the insurance profession, I really hate calling it an industry because I really see us more as professionals these days, but, you know, thinking about your time, what has it given you personally that you never expected to get out of it? I really entered it expecting I'd have a meaningful job. I didn't expect or have a sense of what I'd be doing, you know, X years down the track. I think uh, what it's given me is an enormous connection and an understanding of the communities and the society in which we live, what people do for a living. I mean, the amazing thing about insurance is not insurance itself, but the customers you serve, the enterprises they have, the amazing things they do. And just when you think you get a handle on what's going on, people pop up with a new enterprise or a new profession that no one's written the rules about before. And I mean, today, when you look at the number of startup enterprises or organisations around our community nationally and all the incredible products and services they're developing, and insurance is the one thing that gives you a lens into all of that. You know, not just in a kind of connected way, but in a deeper way, because unless you understand the risks of their business and the implications of their enterprise, you don't really understand how to advise them or assist them. So, And you've just got to look at technology, right? 
when I first started in underwriting, we couldn't even spell technology. Yet now, it's the core of pretty well everything that we do, whether it be risk assessment or whether it be how we work. Just thinking about your time, you know, and you, you would have been through some interesting times, but what's been the most challenging time in your career to date? Probably uh, the most challenging time for me was being in my own business. And that way, because of the external circumstances, the uh, Australian share market took a bit of a tumble at the end, just as I was buying out my partner and all my clients were major corporates. And of course, uh, the first thing costs you cut when you cost as consultants. So having responsibility for employees and leading a business uh, really challenged me enormously. Because I think when you work in organisations, unwittingly, you have a lot of support from people around you. But small business is can be a very lonely place. And it was the biggest challenging time, but it was a, an enormous growth time for me. And it really re-cemented my uh, interest in support for and commitment to the small business community around Australia because, you know, I could see the role for organisations like our own because everybody loves the thought of being in their own business, but no one wants to be on their own uh, when things turn bad. So it was a challenge, but it was also an enormously rewarding time. question that I have for you is, did it have a person, did it have an impact on you personally? Yeah, well, it did. You know, one of the things that you need to learn to do when you're in your, and a piece of advice I got early on in my own business, and it never really made sense until uh, the benefit of hindsight, but how you use your time, how you make decisions, and how you treat people are the three most important things that you, you have at your disposal when leading a business. And certainly, because I was working many hours a day trying to find new customers and replace income, it certainly taught me a lot about valuing my time and where it was best spent. You know, when you're making decisions, some of them can seem larger than life. So you really do need to strip things back to their essential elements and you have to make decisions to move forward. So it really taught me to have the, a bit more courage and I guess a bit more bravery around making decisions and taking risks. Finally, uh, you can make hard decisions without being disrespectful or rude to people. And, you know, I learned a lot about the different types of characters you meet in those times. And it certainly cemented my conviction that there's always a polite, respectful way of even dealing with the difficult aspects of business. It's interesting because there had been a view, particularly in the 80s, where the harder you were, the more respect you earn, right? I'm just not sure that that's the case. I'm not sure it was the case in the 80s. I'm certainly not sure it's the case today. No, I think it's probably like people might admire a wild animal or something like that. There's always some aspects about it which are intriguing, but ultimately, at the end of the day, those people that endured were those people that balanced, got the balance right between the commercial interests and the human interests. And that's one of the biggest challenges in business in any role or leadership in any role. Uh, Richard, they say that successful people are a result of the mistakes they make, but more importantly, what they learn from those mistakes. What do you think you've learned over the years from things that haven't quite worked out the way you thought they might? I'm certainly uh, still learning. There's no doubt about that at all. And reflection, having the time to reflect is absolutely key. 
Uh, probably today, more than ever, we actually have to make mistakes to make progress because we're dealing with problems and issues we haven't dealt with before. Therefore, we need new knowledge to solve these problems. If we keep simply trying to solve new problems with old thinking, we're not going to make progress. I think probably the best thing that I've learned is how to uh, consult wisely with others. Often when trying to make decisions or choose direction, certainly for me being a scientist, I fell into the trap of getting as much information as possible and believing that more was better and richer and ultimately being able to separate fact from opinion because everyone's got an opinion. Uh, the thing I learned probably out of all of it was at some point to trust my instinct and step forward. More often than not, uh, I was right. And at the end of the day, I felt better about owning a mistake if it was mine and not just someone else's mistake that I repeated by taking their advice wrongly. And just thinking about that sort of stuff, is there anything that you would do differently? Well, not really. I think I often say that, you know, what I have today as an outcome in my career is as a result of all the decisions and choices I've made along the way. And so I really wouldn't change where I am today. So it would be risky to go back and change any of the things I did. But I think probably, again, trusting my instinct and actually responding a bit quicker to things that concern me. I think that there are times in my life where I look at decisions that I've made, be they business decisions or otherwise, and I could have actually made them six months earlier, 12 months earlier, but you know, for the sake of needing extra information, I took a little long to do them. And you know, the best example was when we had our own business, we had probably 70% of our income in five clients and they're all major multinationals. And I, for years, I'd thought, you know, this is a high-risk position to be in. And particularly when on one particular day in February, all of their share prices dropped by over 50%. One of them was Rio Tinto Alcan. So you'll probably remember what happened with their slide. It was quite uh, frightening and General Motors Holden. So, you know, I was forced as a result of that, well, my wife and I were in partnership together to get out and find new clients and develop propositions for small business markets. And we had to do that in order to pay the staff and feed ourselves. And, you know, when push came to shove, we did it uh, under an enormous amount of pressure. We could easily have been doing it for 12 months if we'd listened to our own advice. And I think in business, uh, in your career, even, if you get a sense that you have this kind of unsettled feeling or uh, restless curiosity, then the best time to start exploring that is right away because often there's an opportunity there or a problem emerging and you're just not attending to it. So I guess um, I'm a bit quicker out of the blocks these days than I was and perhaps a bit more trusting on my own instinct. Although I've got to say the best thing I've learned to solve that is I listen to the people around me now that are in my team and they are you know, younger and wise and energetic and they certainly keep me poked in the ribs every time I need to wake up and attend to something. You certainly need a combination of different people, I would have thought, just to, as you say, consult wisely. 
so that you, you're looking at all the options. I just want to go back to what you said, you know. So, you know, you had a business where you were dealing with these major multinationals. All of a sudden, you've now had to reinvent the, the entire business. I'm sure there are people listening to this podcast who may well be in that situation, particularly coming off the back of COVID and, and thinking about their future. What sort of steps did you take to sort of start that whole reinvention process? Um, yeah, it was interesting. They were small and quick because I was under pressure. But I think the the biggest challenge was in my own head because I'd managed, I was quite confident and comfortable of myself talking in corporate meeting rooms and in a large settings. But uh, talking to small business people was something I hadn't done for some time. So part of it was actually understanding, you know, myself and where I was comfortable and where I added value. So the best way I did that was I looked at all the small business customers that I'd worked with and I actually rang a few of them and asked them what it was they valued about what we did. So, you know, if you want to understand what will make you successful in the future, just having a little look in the past and dealing in some facts, that was really valuable to me. That gave me a bit of confidence. The second thing I did was just reach out to people. And I know this will sound absolutely glib and cliched, but I'd literally just ring people for a cup of coffee and go armed with some questions to understand what was happening in their world. And maybe one in five times it would result in someone asking me to do some work for them. And it wasn't really the reason that I was there. I think this curiosity, you know, without a doubt, the most valuable thing you can be armed with in life is a half a dozen really good questions. And if you can go out and attack the world with them, I often used to describe them to people as a kind of pick that a goldminder would have used to remove overburden to find the prize underneath. But six good questions in a good conversation with someone who's who you're interested in. And if you're deeply interested in them, you'll get their attention. That was the thing that changed it for me because I suddenly realized that what we were doing was enormous value to a whole lot of people. And in fact, today, you know, even today, I still have this kind of restless dissatisfaction with how small business people get advice and support because it usually comes with a huge price tag and it really not necessarily that practical and helpful for them. And I've got to tell you, that's why an insurance professional is one of the best business partners a small business person can have. I want to change tack for a minute because one of the things that you're, you, you've become very well known for is your um, views on leadership. And also, you know, from a consulting background, you've done some work in this space. Well, certainly interestingly to me, you've said in a CGU podcast on leadership that you never wanted to be a leader, but that you wanted to succeed and progress. Is there a difference? Yeah, look, I think there is. And it's an interesting quest because I always think that leadership is about context. So people often say, well, what makes a good leader? And, you know, it really depends on the moment. I mean, Winston Churchill was a great leader during the war, was not that good in peacetime. There's been the odd turnaround state premier we talk about in Australia who did a fantastic job turning things around, but maybe not so good on taking it forward. And I think, you know, if there was a fire in the building, suddenly someone who was unspoken for months or years in a workplace setting who might be the, the fire warden suddenly takes on a leadership role to save tens of hundreds of lives. And so leadership is about a context, really. It's not a, a role or a title that you have. And I think uh, for me, 
you know, initially with leadership, it was about opportunity. There are things I wanted to do and I couldn't do them without the help of other people or I couldn't do them unless other people came along on the journey with me. And so if you get a whole lot of people together and they have a common interest, but there are things that need to be done to help them collectively achieve it, one of those things will be leadership and direction. When I was at Elders and I was offered the role to lead the insurance division, they had just gone from 150 salaried insurance employees to 50 commission-paid agents overnight. Same work, third of the workforce, no admin staff. And, you know, I really wanted this business to succeed. I wanted those guys to succeed. And I loved all the farming clients and felt we really had an opportunity here. But the only role there was for me to play in that space was to lead the team. And really, you know, I was the least qualified professional in the whole group, all 70 or 80 people in the community. So, but I felt, you know, one of the things I could do well was help navigate the bureaucracy and organize the resources and arm them and help them gather together and head in the same direction. So that was the job I got. But I think initially, you know, there are a lot of implications of being a leader. Peter Harmer, who you know, I admire enormously the recently retired IAG uh, CEO, uh, managing director, used to say that leadership is the highest form of service. And I think that that is a, a very good description, is that when you're in a leader's role, if everyone else succeeds or makes progress, then you're making progress. So uh, it was never about uh, the prestige that came with it or the authority or anything like that. And so I guess that's how I ended up. If I could have done what I wanted to do and not had to take anyone on the journey, then possibly I would have just gone on my own merry way, perhaps. Uh, but you know, and I know now that that's not possible in life anyway. So. No. And just talking about that, you know, that your days at Elders, which you said was one of your first leadership experiences, you said you were Stephen Bradbury-esque. In other words, you were the last man standing and you ended up with the role. I guess the question from me is, how did you go about being successful in that role where you'd had, with all due respect, little experience prior to it? You certainly had the enthusiasm of youth, I would imagine. But what did you actually do to work out what you needed to do to lead people? Because it's not an easy thing, right? Uh, no, it's not. And I did, again, consult people. So I think the day I got the job, I rang the then State General Manager in Western Australia who I admired enormously, and I said, well, guess what? I've just been asked to take on the role as head of the insurance team. I'm going to have to lift my game. And his response to me was, Richard, uh, you got to where you are being what you are, so I suggest you don't change the formula at this point. And I thought uh, about that a lot, and that was important. And I realised that the most important thing I could do was understand what were the needs of the major stakeholders. And so I consulted widely with the members of the network, the authorised reps as, or agents as they were then. I talked to the people in Commercial Union who were absolutely amazing and they were CU then, David Ruse and uh, Philip Clares and a whole lot of larger-than-life characters and also those and their other partners. And so I understood who was who in the zoo and I had a good mentor or two in, in elders who helped me. So the sorts of decisions... I had to make generally involved either the service delivery to the customer insurance, and I had somebody to help me and escalate to with that. They're about money and commercials, and we had one of the sharpest CFOs I'd dealt with. And, you know, they were about people, and I had a 
a colleague uh, and mentor who I admired enormously who helped me navigate people leadership decisions and um, I really had to rely on them. So the things that I had to rely on myself for were to be organised and to commit the time. So to get to work early, on time, have a clear head, be fit and healthy and make sure I could tackle the day. Uh, we're speaking with Richard Crawford, who's the leader of the Community Broker Network. Richard, just uh, in relation to leadership, one of the things you said, and I quote, give away as much power as you can to those around you to empower others. I'd love to know what you meant by that comment. The thing about leadership is that for you to succeed, others need to are around you. And it's a, one of the greatest paradoxes of leadership that you have to give away control in order to get it. I don't know whether you've experienced being a leader in uh, challenging times, but generally what happens is the more things get out of control, the more anxiety levels rise, the more stress levels rise. And often leaders, the more authority they retain or withdraw and decision-making suddenly becomes centralised. And yet one of the greatest conundrums I learned was that at the time when you're most authorised to make decisions, you're least capable. So as a CEO, you have most of the authority you need to solve most of the problems, but you don't have the knowledge because the people who have the knowledge to solve the problems are the ones closest to the customer or closest to the coalface. So for me, the definition of leadership is to create a space for other people to step into and to grow and to thrive. And so the more I can create that space where people can have some authority, make their own decisions, take action and learn and grow, then the more empowered the business will be and the more successful will be. Particularly because, you know, and probably my first days at Elders taught me that. Here was I running a business that had, you know, in those days, 100 million turnover. It wasn't huge, but it was big in those days. And I knew I hadn't had a commercial finance role. We depended deeply on insurance products. And I certainly wasn't an underwriter and had no experience. And we were dealing with farmers on all matter of animal husbandry or crop production, a large amount of which I didn't know. So I figured the only way I was going to be successful was to allow those people who had that knowledge to succeed. And if they were able to, then we would collectively win. And it's a bit of a formula that has worked with me when I got to CBN. You know, originally when I, I got here, we were Westcourt General Insurance Brokers, which was a fantastic uh, legacy business founded by Jeff Hollands. I've been around a long, long time. We were National Advisor Services from Western Australia, Hugh Beggs, and again, it was an enormous uh, legacy business. And we then inherited a large number of uh, amazing people from the CGUAR network. So we weren't really a business per se. We were three groups of people coming together. And in terms of my skill or knowledge of each of them, uh, it was very small. So uh, again, the only thing I could do was try and create the space and let those who had the knowledge and the skill try and operate in the new world and be successful in the new world. And fortunately for us, you know, in the main over the first few years, it has been successful. It's interesting because I have been involved in something like that. You know, when I was at OAMS, we did a lot of acquisitions. We did about 100 acquisitions in the space of three years. I did certainly find it challenging to get the group working in harmony. And we were really good at it, right? We were really, really good at it. The comment that you made around empowering other people to make it happen almost is 
counter counter to leadership because people think if I'm a leader, I need to have all the answers. I need to be out front. I need to be making it happen. I need to be showing people the way. What would you say to someone saying that sort of stuff? And it is often about how you feel as the leader rather than necessarily how the people feel as people. It's very much about assessing the readiness level of people you're working with. So leaders, you know, the best leaders, Mark, that we've experienced over time have a range of styles that moves from uh, directing and telling all the way through to delegating and empowering. It's really dangerous to delegate to people that aren't skilled or confident because they'll fail. And But likewise, it's really dangerous to corral, direct and control people that could easily run 500 yards ahead of you. So again, you know, leadership is about people. It's a people business and you have to assess where people before you make a decision about how to lead them. And empowering some people can be about giving them very clear direction on how to succeed in their job today if they're new. So one of the things that annoys everyone in our place that I do is I read and rewrite a lot of the position descriptions that people have. And I do that for the simple reason that when people are new and unclear, it's the single source of truth they can come back to and we can have a conversation about, which says about, you know, well, where are you feeling comfortable and where are you succeeding? And where are those areas that are challenging you? One of the best bits of learning I ever did was through a program called Immunity to Change. And it was run by a fellow called Robert Keegan, who's one of the best researchers and academics in adult development. And, uh, The whole program was about understanding that we have, as individuals, we have uh, this kind of mental immune system, just in the same way we have a physical immune system, and we reject ideas that are counterintuitive to what we've learned over the years about uh, what can help us. So Robert Keegan started exploring this area uh, because his father, every time he lit up a cigarette, used to say, these things are going to kill me. And he would ask his father, well, why the bloody hell are you lighting them up? You know, so, but often every day at work, people do things that they know will cause them to fail out of fear of stuff they don't know. So as a leader, our job is to work with people both on what they understand to be the case and also to deal with stuff that they fear. And so if you can have that conversation with someone that says, well, what parts of your job don't you feel comfortable doing? What parts of them aren't you happy with? And how can we build in support for you to do them well? Because you've got the job, you've earned the right to be here, but you have to be able to admit those things you're not good at uh, in the same way that you have to be able to say, hey, I've got this part, you don't need to help me with this. So as a leader, if you can work with people with that kind of framework in mind, you're only ever giving up control to those people that are ready to take it. And I think it's very much like letting go of the push bike seat when you're teaching your children to ride a bike. Or for me, it's saying to someone, you go and handle that negotiation. You've got it. I've got all the confidence in the world in you. And if you fail, I'm reminded of a a fellow when I first joined the Shell Company. He was the deputy head of commercial in Queensland, Mr. Jim Mason. And they built a, a, a service station at Boyne Island, just near Gladstone. Uh, on the basis that the new smelter was being built and the town was going to prosper and everybody would want fuel and it'd be great. Unfortunately, the second smelter line didn't get built and town went into the doldrums and they couldn't get anyone to take over the service station. And 
Jim said to me, well, you, you've finished, you've graduated your area manager program, but until we've got a territory for you, would you go up and run the service station? Heavens above, Jim. I don't have any experience. Do you want me to count the money, to manage the staff, do all of that? He said, you'll be right. And I said, oh, I'm not so sure. He said, Richard, the worst thing you could do is burn it to the ground. And we did build it, so we can build it again. So on that basis, I think you just need to get in your car and get up there and do it. And uh, that was a perfect example of me, of you know, risk management. At the end of the day, in insurance, we're all risk professionals. Sometimes you've got to work out how much risk you're prepared to uh, let your people take and then back them in for it. Well, I can certainly confirm that, you know, the way you, you run the CBN network is absolute proof of that because I think I've been dealing with CBN off and on in my different roles for about three or four years. And at no point did I hear anyone say, I've got to refer it to Richard. They seem to be empowered enough to be able to make the decisions there and then and give me an answer. And, you know, and as a supplier, that was really valuable to me because I knew that I was dealing with you know, the buck stopped with the person I was dealing with. So I found that really fascinating. Yeah, it really was. Um, If you were able to speak to that young man who graduated as an environmental scientist, what advice would you give him? Probably just to have a little bit more faith and confidence in myself and be a little bit braver. There's a lot of amazing things just over the edge of the horizon and often uh, we don't look far enough ahead and take the risks that come with the rewards. I think failure is always appears a lot larger than it is in reality, and risk and reward always seems a lot further off. So getting that balance right between what risk you're prepared to take and what kind of reward you're prepared or you think you're entitled to is really important uh, because you know, there's enormous opportunity out there. The insurance profession is one of the most engaging, amazing professions I've ever been involved in. And I witness people every day with legal, accounting, finance, commercial, engineering, science, all manner of backgrounds come together in this incredible melting pot we call a profession. And within it, you have the opportunity to scale career heights that corporately can't be, you know, without parallel globally. And yet, at the same time, you can feed your inner entrepreneur by joining, uh, starting your own enterprise, which is so easy, or joining a community. And yet the only thing that will really stop either of those is your own belief in yourself and your ability to succeed. And also, I guess, whether you believe in, you're entitled to aspire for that in the first place. And I think the answers to both is, yeah, the opportunity is there for everybody. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. And take those big leaps early in your life and early in your career because you've got a whole lifetime to make up for your mistakes. And uh, despite the number I've made along the way, you know, I still found myself in a spot which is just an amazing place to be at this stage of my career. Are you seeing a difference in millennials coming through the system? Are you seeing that they're different to how you and I might have operated in a business sense? Firstly, the institution has less power than it did and the individual has more power. And that's a good balance because we gave away too much authority to the people that employed us when we were young and we uh, ascribed too much power to the people that we worked for. So individuals are challenging yeah, and they're challenging everything that's around them. And honestly, that's driving us to be better employers. 
and better leaders. Certainly, you know, we're aspiring to help meet the needs of people. Individuals want a lot more, a lot more quickly, but in fact, there's a lot more out there. It's about understanding what progress and success looks like, and we still need to calibrate that. You know, in our days, progress and success was uh, boxes on an org chart and layers of management. And yet uh, today we've got to, and look, this is work in progress for us, but we've got to redefine progress so that people aren't necessarily wanting promotions. They're wanting progress uh, toward their goals and ambitions. Our team are teaching us to do that because we want to keep great people. We understand it's hard to, and we will train and release far more than we'll ever retain, but it doesn't matter. It's still our ambition. And I think finally, I love the fact that Millennials, young people today have less fear about the unknown and more confidence in their own ability to succeed because the reality is that way they're going to learn far faster than I did. They may fail, but we know that failure is really only stepping back these days. It's not catastrophic. They'll learn more than they'll fail, uh, but they'll also progress to heights and uh, levels that we've never considered before. And, you know, to have one of the loudest voices on global warming to be an adolescent from European country is just incredible sort of, I guess, evidence of what the opportunity is for people today to have a voice. You're speaking about changing dynamic in a CBN video, which you released in November of last year. One of the things you said in it was, How businesses fare during COVID will be due to two significant factors. Firstly, external factors and how they influence brokers. And secondly, how we respond, which is up to us, given the fact we're sort of coming to the back end of COVID in inverted commas until we we, we know more. How well do you think we've gone with it uh, as a profession? Look, so far, really good. We were far more curious than we were judgmental to quote Ted Lasso, I think we actually didn't pretend to have all the answers. So we did a hell of a lot of exploring and testing and learning. So the industry was very quick to work from home, very trusting to give people flexible workspaces, uh, very quick to create solutions for customers, faring poorly financially, very generous in employee support, very caring and nurturing. And the best side of I say industry at a macro level, profession, you know, all the different professions, whether they were the brokers, the risk advisors, the adjusters, everybody, the underwriters, really opened their minds and with a willingness to explore things without necessarily needing to be 100% correct in the answer. That was extraordinary. And it's not our industry. Our industry thrives on certainty and, you know, knowledge and absolutism, and we had none of that. So all of those kind of judgment calls and things we made was just extraordinary. I think we're at a watershed moment now. We're going to either go forward or regress because we have to learn what we've used, what we've learned about uncertainty and create business models to go forward that way. It's as simple as, you know, the return to the office. We've said to our team, we're never returning the way we were. You know, we've got beautiful offices, but they're never going to be the same. They'll be there and we'll be using them, but they'll be different. You know, maybe they're going to be not our offices, but for our whole community, they're going to be hubs for where people connect. But let's just 
not think about going back. Let's think about going forward. And I think the challenge at the top end of our, you know, supply chain and the capital markets, et cetera, is people looking for certainty in financial returns in uncertain times. It's going to create a lot of uncertainty for the customers, for the brokers and the market. So hopefully as an industry, we'll use our collaboration, which, you know, I believe we will. And the emergence of specialist underwriting agencies and specialist brokers is really showing evolution and adaptability and agility. I think we'll use our expertise to get relevant for the next wave. I want to pick up on that point about going forward, because if you look back over the last five to 10 years, you know, there's so much has already changed within the industry. You know, we've had the rise of the broking in the AR cluster groups. We've seen increased legislation and compliance. Almost every year, we've had some major thing we've had to deal with, from a, certainly from a broking perspective. True global access to insurers now and reinsurers and a spate of acquisitions where, you know, we, we sort of have a shrinking market in some respects. If you talk about going forward, what do you envisage that looking like for you? I think boy, how it changes for us will be for everybody because we've, when I first joined the insurance industry and profession, we used to joke and say that we're probably about a turn of the generational clock behind the banking and finance industry. I think we've made up all of that ground. I think in terms of our understanding of the customer, our product, its uh, appropriateness for the market, the way we've structured ourselves, the way we've evolved rapidly, I think we've made up all of that ground. I really believe we have. What's going to happen is that the structure in our supply chain is going to blur more and more. So jobs that were typically done by an underwriter or by a broker or by an underwriting agent will all uh, blur together because uh, ultimately it will be about where the skills reside and where the work is best done. And, you know, I think, you know, I often say about AR networks that we're really, in any other industry, we would simply be a shared service business. In insurance, we got a name because we held the license, but ultimately all we're doing is sharing the labour on those things that can be automated or streamlined or done more efficiently, relieving the professional to use their time and advice to their greatest advantage. And I think uh, we'll see that sort of uh, value chain uh, blur a lot more. So customers doing more for themselves online, brokers doing more risk management and advice, uh, hopefully underwriting agents being the font of underwriting expertise and underwriting technology with niche market focuses so that we keep expertise and insurers with their hands on the capital and uh, doing that sort of stuff that means we can all go to business. I think those roles will blur. Certainly, we have to get more efficient and we have to get uh, lower cost so that otherwise, you know, we will be disrupted. But, I, I, you know, I think we're well on the way to doing all of that. And I totally agree with you. I guess the thing that confounds and confuses me a little bit is when you look at things like the Roy Morgan Research Poll, you know, they survey 40 different professions and almost year on year on year, insurance brokers rank fourth from the bottom. Yeah. The reason I jumped in there is because I've been grappling with this question for quite some time. I had the benefit of running an industry leadership program for a number of years on behalf of IG and Dallas Booth from Navy used to come when the students were presenting back their end of program 
learning journeys. And we'd often talk about how the industry became more attractive to talent. I think, in my view, I think the Roy Morgan poll is asking a question that no one really needs answered. The fact is, if you ask a broker's client whether they value their broker, they say yes. If you ask employees within the insurance, underwriting, broking, any of those spaces, yes, they generally fall into insurance. Do they stay? Oh, they're stickier than any other profession I've ever come across in my life. So people that work in the industry or deal with the industry have an enormous respect for it. And increasingly, there are more people entering through diverse means. Now, I know that at the moment, the numbers suggest we're not getting the young talent in that we should. But rather than boil the ocean, I think we should just understand that there's an education opportunity and let's go and target those areas of education or those sources of talent that we want to target. Because I think, you know, at the end of the day, I've it's a disrespect to any of those professions and the people that work in them to say uh, that they're the most disregarded jobs in the community. They're probably just the most misunderstood. And if we treated it like that, then therein lies our opportunity, I think. So final couple of questions for you, Richard Crawford. The first one uh, I'm going to ask, which is on climate change, right? Because you've studied agricultural ecosystems. You've worked in rural settings for many years. As an insurance profession, what can we do to tackle the whole issue around climate change? Yeah, look, I think for me, it is about uh, I, we and it. We always talk about uh, as a construct for organisations and individuals and how we change the world, it starts at the first level, which is I. And I think, you know, whether we're insurance or anywhere, we really have to take a moment and consider the individual impact that we're having on global warming, which is our primary issue, but environmental degradation, I guess, and just consider how we can make that change. And because that's the bit we can control and the bits that we can control, we should just get on and control. Because if a everyone in the profession was doing their own bit, then we'd be miles in front. There's a lot of people involved. The we bit, the collective bit, is all about what we can influence. And there's an enormous amount we can influence within uh, insurance. In the first instance, we are about risk management and risk advice to clients. And sustainability in a business is all about uh, long-term risk management. And I think we need to converge the two agendas together and be more inquiring and curious about the sustainability of the businesses that we're servicing and supporting and start to consider how we can turn their focus toward uh, longer-term views and maybe as a profession start to or continue to develop our body of thought there. At the third level is all that stuff we, uh, you know, we're curious or, or concern us and but we can't do a lot about. I think we need to be more curious about. You know, the banking industry has obviously taken, and the insurance industry is doing work around taking stances on industries or businesses that uh, that are having a long-term impact. But the challenge with environmental cost is it's going to be paid long into the future, but the damage is done now. And it's a bit like managing our health or managing your superannuation or all those things that can don't concern you when you're young, uh, but start to concern you when the time comes. Somehow we have to bring the future cost into today's dollars so that people can start to see the impact 
of what they're doing. So I'd certainly be curious as to how we as an industry can bring or materialise some of that future cost today so that we can put a price on it today. One that we're prepared to pay today without grinding the whole country or industry to a halt, but one that, you know, is a reserve. What a fantastic insurance concept uh, is a reserve today that maybe we can release down track, but at least uh, we know that we've got the balance sheet in order. I was personally surprised and, and delighted with the stance that insurance companies took on some of the mining activities in Western Australia. By refusing to insure the business, there was a huge hue and cry around, well, you know, we cannot operate without insurance. Do you see that as becoming more and something that's going to become more and more uh, common? Absolutely. And is it going to be a good conversation? No. And will we get it right every time? Not at all. But, you know, it's that kind of discordance, that discomfort that comes from people grappling with this issue that's going to cause change. And every time we'll get closer to what's right. It is brave and we've experienced both sides of it and it isn't good. But the other thing to remember is that, you know, insurance companies or corporate, large corporate organisations aren't agile and adept at making this kind of change. They're, you know, they're large instruments and it's like governments trying to mandate change. Uh, When you're getting change driven at that end, it is always going to be noisy and uncomfortable. And that's why we, at the broking end, at the customer end, at the industry end, have to be agitating for change as well. You know, people like Twiggy, Forrest and others are just fantastic because if we can get change happening at this end, uh, then they're far more perfect instruments. We can be agile. We can cater for individual circumstances. We can make propositions that are going to be implemented. But unfortunately, that's just going to be a fact of life and we're not going to like it but at least we can take our hats off to those people that are having a crack. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I think there's certainly opportunities in evolution, right? I mean, you mentioned Twiggy Forest and his green hydrogen promotion, you know, that sort of stuff. You know, if no one else is doing it, then there's a real first mover advantage in jumping into those spaces. Absolutely. And look, you know, make no mistake, and you only have to look at Elon Musk. I mean, there's enormous opportunity. And the thing about the... Uh, sustainability challenge is it's commercially it's a very rich paddock but it's like a lot of things it's like cryptocurrency or anything else you know it's like a lot of things that we don't understand it's really hard to embrace but you know those amongst us that are crazy in terms of the power of imagination and thought are already engaging in this space and it's incredible to watch really is so final question to you sir what's next for richard crawford and cbn You know, CBN has really been playing catch-up, I guess, because we've been three organisations coming together. We've had a big community of people and an enormous amount of talent. Uh, But for us, it's getting ahead of the game. So one of our primary questions at the moment is how do we bring more talent into the industry and how do we develop opportunities for younger people to bridge the gap between where they're standing and the real opportunity that we see here And the second part is how do we ensure that the way they serve their customers continues to be relevant for us? We just really aim to be the best we can do. And in a profession that we think is a fantastic one to operate in, I mean, we're proud of all our 
competitors. I love the drive that we have and guided by Niebuhr and Steadfast and others to really lift our game. And so for us, we see ourselves as an incubator of talent. And I think over time, uh, we'll redefine ourselves more as a capability centre than we will ever be known as an, you know, an AR network or a licensee because all of those kind of traditional functions we've had will become far less important and simply being able to empower people to get out there and make an amazing amount of impact on the customer markets, that will be, you know, what our opportunity is. Absolutely. Richard Crawford, it's been an absolute pleasure and a delight to speak to you. And thank you so much for your words of wisdom and also sharing with us a little bit on Business Made Personal. Thank you so much for lending us your ears. Please remember to click follow on your podcast app or subscribe at bmppodcast.com.au so we can give you a sneak peek of our next guest. Until next time, I'm Mark Silvera and you've been listening to Business Made Personal.